morning. Good to see you all here. So I'd like to begin with this uh, question. That's a fill-in-the-blank question. Put one limitation. You can just use one word to, to fill in the blank. Here's, a, here's the sentence. All God's ways are blank. What? Great, good. Maybe some of you thought, you know, loving, true, or maybe even uh, really frustrating or perplexing. Well, uh, here's something that has uh, caught me by surprise as I've looked at this topic of justice in the scriptures. Because here's how Moses, we're going to put that up there. Here's how Moses, the great man of God, the, the man chosen to lead his people out of Egypt, finishes that sentence using just one word. I'm going to go to the next slide there. Maybe I should just turn the laser on and point it at eyes or something. Or <laughs> Let me go ahead and read that passage for you, and it'll show up eventually. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 through 4. This is what Moses says. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So these lines are from the famous Song of Moses, which come at the end of Deuteronomy. It's the final swan song of Moses as he comes to the end of his life, and he's trying to, to summarize the relationship of God with his people. And right from the opening of the song, the, the very first thing that Moses wants God's people to know about all of God's ways is that, verse 4, all his ways are justice. And then Moses emphatically repeats the idea, just in case we miss it, just and upright is he. Now, what are we supposed to take away from this? Well, I'd say one big takeaway is that if we're going to talk and think faithfully about any aspect of God's character, whether it be his love, his goodness, his truthfulness, or even his uh, perplexing mysteriousness, we must do so acknowledging that all his ways are just. And this, this idea isn't exactly rare in the Bible. In fact, it's everywhere in the Bible. You know, it's said in so many different ways, hundreds of times over, meaning that even if you are the most lazy reader of Scripture, take hope, you have a hard time missing this big truth that all of God's ways are justice. So this is the, the first and foremost reason why we're going to spend a few Sundays uh, this month as a body looking at what the Bible has to say about God's just ways. And in so doing, hopefully we'll also be able to cut through some of the, the noise and confusion in our culture concerning this topic of justice, a noise and a confusion that seems to be growing both inside and outside the church. Now, that said, uh, there's no way, as, uh, as a mere mortal, 
as a group of mere mortals, just in a few Sundays, we're going to do full justice to this topic of, of biblical justice. Um, but my hope is that we'll all be able to take away and carve some key parts of the foundation. We'll all together grow in his ways as a result. So what we're going to look at today is a basic overview of biblical justice, uh, moving from creation to the cross of Christ. And then in the next few weeks, uh, we're going to draw out some of the key implications for, for our lives. But I want to begin emphasizing right from the start that what we're going to try to explore today is biblical justice. Because biblical justice, is, as Moses has already put it, it's not about man's ways, but the Lord's. Meaning, if we want to see what true, transcendent justice actually walks and talks like, we must look to God's ways revealed in his word. And this leads us to the first thing that we actually need to grasp about the bedrock or, or essence, how we think about all forms of justice, including biblical justice. You see... Before uh, any ideas about justice can actually exist, what's required first is some standard or law of justice that, or I should say righteousness, that justice upholds. Justice in one sense is simply the outworking or the application of some standard of law, of good or evil, right and wrong, Next slide. So uh, one way to picture justice would be to, to envision it as a flame, right? And righteousness would then be the oxygen, the fuel, the heat that, that the flame needs to burn, which means that apart from righteousness, justice doesn't exist. It basically gets snuffed out. And that leads me to the first point, which you've heard already. That first point being, all his ways are justice. That is, the Bible presents his vision of justice that's fueled by none other than the righteous character of God himself. All right? And that's why uh, this biblical part of biblical justice is so important, and this is where it comes in, because here's what the Bible is, and here's what it does. The Bible shows us by his Holy Spirit, how God walks and talks. Right? Or put another way, it's the reliable and accessible and authoritative testimony that we have of who God actually is. Because ultimately, it's his own self-revelation. It's him revealing himself. And to put it just one more way so that I can be really clear, as clear as possible. The scriptures are like this wonderful invitation that God himself gives to people throughout time, throughout salvation history, inviting them to know me and live. Look upon me and live. So, if we really want to know what God's holy justice looks like, we must reckon with the Bible, 
And in the course of reckoning with the Bible, the Bible's going to reckon with us, because that's how it works. And a lot of people want to avoid that, and they want to look to alternatives. Because there are alternatives to God's word. And they also often come with promises and hopes and offers of life. And that alternative simply is man's words. Let that ring hollow because uh, I think that's what man's word is, is ultimately. For example, here's a, here's a common way uh, man's words will try to define righteousness and therefore justice in our culture. You've probably heard this before. Um, you're not a bad person as long as you do what you do behind closed doors and you don't harm anyone. Well, what, what do you mean by harming someone? Well, no, no, I, I don't want to talk about that. Um, now, it's from such empty platitudes, and there are many others like it, that mankind tries to fashion their own philosophies of justice, but they're all a bit narrow, if you look at them honestly. They're all a bit reductionistic. They all feel a little bit half-true, and none of them even by their authors, have quite worked out as they'd hoped. Which is one reason why people seem to keep needing to come up with more theories and philosophies of justice. For instance, um, here are the secular theories of justice that have profoundly shaped our Western culture in the last century or so. These are just the four major ones. There are many more. And they all actually have a way of competing with and contradicting one another. I, I borrowed this graph uh, from an essay on the secular theories of justice by Tim Keller. And here's the interesting thing, as Keller points out, that all of these secular theories of justice, they all raise valid concerns. And all of them even borrow certain elements of the biblical vision of justice, such as the dignity and value of all human beings. And whether you want to believe it or not, these theories have likely influenced us all to some degree because there's also a lot of social pressure to bow down to any one of them, depending on your context. And this is true regardless of where you think you land on the, the political spectrum. So let me uh, quickly summarize these theories and these, uh, these theories, they operate from a spectrum, or they move from a spectrum from emphasizing the individual to the collective. I'll start with the individual side. We start with libertarianism, which in one word can be summed up as being all about freedom. Right? And then we move on to liberalism, or what we understand as classical liberalism. And this is all about emphasizing fairness. And then as you move more toward the collectivist side, you get utilitarianism, which is focused on happiness. And then the latest fad, critical theory and all its descendants, which is focused on power. Now, just in case any of us are tempted to hold to any one of these ideologies or philosophies too closely, I just want to remind us yet again that every one of these theories are 
indeed secular. No matter how good they sound, absolutely none of these philosophies claim to be reliant upon Christ or his gospel, much less the authority of God's word. So even though the, the, these theories might share some things in common with a biblical vision of justice, they all end up missing the mark. They all fall short of the biblical vision. And as they kind of correct certain injustices, they have a way of wreaking and producing other new injustices. <laughs> it's just how they function out in the real world. And here's the simple, it's almost too simple, but here's the simple explanation why this is the case. Because guess who is at the center of all these theories about justice? Man. Man is at the center. Either as an individual or as a collective. Every one of these secular theories exalts man. And they represent the oldest problem that we as human beings have, which is our striving to assert ourselves by defining righteousness and justice on our own narrow, deluded terms. Which is also what makes the biblical vision of justice so radically different from them all. How so? Simply because... Biblical justice doesn't actually put man at the center. Rather, it is God who is at the center of biblical, true justice. And it's honoring God as God. That's what is first and foremost uh, going to set biblical justice apart. It's always going to be set apart and different from any worldly, man-centered vision. And I also want to remind us that uh, this biblical vision of justice existed long before any of these modern philosophies. All right? The simple fact that God's justice precedes them all as it transcends them all should be a great comfort to us. All right? As the waves of culture just kind of constantly change and pound upon us and, and try to toss us to and fro, demanding our allegiance, to this earthly philosophy or teacher or tribe or whatever, we have to come back to the fact that our footing is much more sure, right? That our footing is on the rock that is the Lord. And we can actually rest assured that his justice, the justice that his word speaks of, is actually coming about. And not only is it coming about, but it's going to endure forever. So, having established that God's ways are just and that his righteousness is the basis for biblical justice, here's what actually uh, sets um, justice as a, as a passionate topic before us. This is why, this is the real reason every one of us, whether we realize it or not, cares intensely about justice. Well, we care about justice because of all the injustice, right, that pervades the world. And who has an experience in justice to some degree? And who of us doesn't carry the longing in our bones to see all these wrongs ultimately made right? And this longing is just this inescapable part of being human, 
because we're made in God's image, whose ways, once again, are always just. But we also know that the, uh, the scriptures inform us that the image of God in us isn't as it should be. It's corrupted. It's distorted in each and every one of us, which means our ways have a way of, of not lining up with God's ways. And here is the very surprising thing that we learn about the history of injustice in the very first opening chapters of the Bible. We learn that the first person subjected to injustice or the first victim of injustice wasn't actually a human being. It was God himself. And who perpetrated this injustice against the Lord? It was none other than his very own image bearers. We've all heard the story so many times, we've kind of become numb to it, but it's such a fresh, relevant story every day. After God created Adam and Eve and bestowed upon them the highest glory and honor in all of creation, fashioning them in his own sacred, holy image, and then grants them everlasting life in paradise, demonstrating his perfect love and grace. After all that, how do God's image bearers repay their creator? Well, uh, this brings us to another minimal working definition of justice. And we'll see more later why it's a minimal definition. But a minimal understanding of justice is simply giving someone their due. Right? I pay you for a product or service, you give me that product or service. And humanity, instead of giving God what was his due, sought to take his due from him, steal it for themselves, actually uh, rebelling against their creator king and, and, and trying to take from God his very own position to do what? To rightly judge. Right? You see, when Adam and Eve and, uh, uh, took of the fruit and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't just them trying to have a snack right? or trying to be naughty. It was actually the highest form of treason that they could commit because what that act represented was humanity trying to take control of good and evil for themselves to be gods unto themselves, to decide what's right and wrong for themselves, literally taking justice into their own hands, away from the only one entitled to such authority, the just creator, God himself. And from that transgression on, surprise, surprise, injustice creeps in between the human beings. They refuse to give to each other what they are due. Now, is that a surprise? After all, if you're not going to honor the image of God, why would you honor the image giver, God himself? So, mankind's injustice shows its true colors right away. 
Those colors are blood red. As the very first son of Adam, Cain, murders his brother Abel. And while you may think that this was uh, first and foremost a crime against Abel, it wasn't, right? It was much more than that. Because whose image did Abel bear? It was the Lord. It was this act of hostility ultimately against God himself. But here's something really telling about Cain, and it's very telling about us all, actually. Because after Cain murders his brother, God confronts Cain about this crime, and Cain responds with what is actually the first recorded question from man to God in the Bible. Uh, sadly, it's, it's not this um, honest question. It's a question that actually exposes the heart of our sin, and it's been at the heart of all injustice ever since. Genesis 4-9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? It's actually a statement that gives away his guilt, right? It's someone trying to feign ignorance, uh, pretending to have a lack of knowledge. And then he poses this question to self-justify, trying to pull a fast one before the creator God. But God, the holy and just judge, sees through it all. And just in case you're wondering if you're going to try that strategy, he always sees through it all. And Cain's words actually represent this tragic irony because this word keeper that Cain used, it's also the same word that God used to commission mankind's very job, very function, in the garden, in creation, God expressly created Adam to work it and keep it. That is, keep and steward God's creation in accordance with his ways. And Cain somehow thought that this keeping didn't include keeping the very pinnacle of God's creation, which was his fellow image bearer. And then it gets much, much worse from there. Just go read the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And this leads me to my second point, which simply is, when we turn from the Lord, we turn to injustice. When we turn from the Lord, we turn to injustice. And that's basically the summary of the history of, of, of Israel after Moses. It's this vicious cycle of turning from the Lord and then turning to injustice over and over. And we see this poignantly and painfully, particularly in the story of King David, a man who is supposed to represent the high point of Israel. And, and I would say right at the pinnacle of his success, King David, all of a sudden, becomes terribly forgetful and neglectful of the word of the Lord. And we're going we're gonna to spend a, a, 
many Sundays working through uh, the very book where this is, this is recorded for us, 2 Samuel, in the coming months. But it just shows how this works out, even in the hearts of a people who've experienced so much grace and goodness at the heart of God, or from the heart of God. But coming back to King David, when things get really, really nice and comfortable, all of a sudden, instead of uh, serving God's people as he was commissioned to, he decides to take the power that's given to him and use it, or rather abuse it, to serve himself by taking another man's wife, Bathsheba, and then having her husband Uriah murdered. So not only does David commit uh, such heinous sins as, as murderous adultery against Bathsheba and Uriah, he also sins against his courts, his armies, and basically the whole nation of Israel. Basically, who, who, who didn't he sin against? But here's David's own surprising confession and prayer of repentance to the Lord after all that. Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Uh, This is just to impress upon us something that King David himself understood after basically putting himself through hell. In the dark depths of his sin, he realized that all sin, all injustice, which which is committed against people, yes, and yet it is first and foremost committed against the Lord. Against you, you only have I sinned. And one crucial takeaway from all this is that God in no way is he removed from all the horrific evil that we inflict upon one another on a seemingly never-ending basis. Right? It, It disturbs and it violates him in ways and in and to such an extent that we will never understand. We will never be able to fathom. It hits him closer than it ever hits any single one of us. Which is why his anguish and his anger is justified. Now after King David, the history of Israel simply, you know, that, as, I, as I've already hinted, they, they turn from the Lord. And then they turn to injustice. They sin against each other. They fail to give God his due. And then they also fail to give one another their due. You have a few breaks here and there on account of God's mercy and grace. But it's just this vicious cycle of sin and injustice. Sin and injustice. Uh, but this is, this is what I hope you will remember or, or understand about that cycle. Because you know what always preceded these seasons of terrible injustice in Israel? What always came before injustice 
was the sin of idolatry. Idolatry. The roots of injustice were always idolatry. False worship. If you read the prophets, um, their job number one was basically to call Israel back to true covenantal worship. But they always, always had to address the corresponding injustices that were wreaking havoc amongst the people because of the false worship. Because once again, as people turn from the Lord, they turn to injustice. And we're going to fast forward now to the New Testament, where you would hope that you would find that God's people have learned some hard-fought lessons, you know, that they learned from the failures of their forefathers, that they wouldn't walk so typically in the ways of Cain. Unfortunately, when Jesus arrives on the scene, he encounters the elite teachers of Israel, the scribes, trying to use and actually expand Cain's Am I my brother's keeper line of defense. So, here they are trying to find a workaround around God's command to love your neighbor as yourself, which, by the way, is much broader and more expansive than loving your brother as yourself. And we're told in Luke chapter 10 of an account where a teacher of the law, a scribe, uh, tries to catch Jesus out, make him look like a fool by trying to find some loophole around God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. Which, by the way, Jesus has already taught is inseparable from loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And here's the scripture, or here's the scribe questioning Jesus. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? What a convenient little way out. If they aren't your brother, much less your neighbor, then you bear no obligation. Uh, you don't have to worry about how you treat them before the eyes of the all-knowing, all-seeing God. And Jesus responds to this question with a parable. And you all have probably heard it. It's the one about the Good Samaritan. A parable that, by the way, has its, as its hero, a Samaritan, who, in the eyes of a pious Jewish person, was an unclean heretic foreigner. Never mind that they also share some common blood with the Israelites, but Jesus holds up this Samaritan as a model of righteousness and justice to be imitated. And Jesus makes a simple point with that parable. Go, go home and read it. He makes the point that maybe the question should not be, who is my neighbor? But rather the question should be, the one that we're asking earnestly is, how can I be a neighbor? How can I be a neighbor? So let's look again at these questions. Number one, am I my brother's keeper? And number two, and who is my neighbor? Because here's how these questions play out in real life. Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? Leads to murder. And number two, the other one, who is my neighbor? Leaves people to die at the hands of murderers. 
Because if you remember, that's what happened to the guy in the Good Samaritan story. He was robbed and beaten and basically left for dead <laughs> until the Samaritan came. So, if this hasn't been heavy or discouraging enough, it's time we got real about what kind of world we actually live in. Because here's the one sobering truth that the gospel of Christ and him crucified tells us about what kind of world sinful mankind has made here. It's the kind of world where if a holy, righteous person were to ever walk here, that person would be doomed to face a horribly unjust death at our very hands. That's exactly what happened to the only holy, righteous person to ever walk the face of this earth, right? As we saw in Mark, Christ Jesus, the only holy, righteous one to have ever lived, was subjected to the most abominable injustice of the cross. We live in a world so bent and warped toward evil and injustice that no truly righteous person can show up here and make it out alive unless God somehow intervenes. Let's not forget who God holds accountable for subjecting Jesus to that gross injustice on the cross. It's not just the the people of of first century Rome or Jerusalem because scripture in many times and in many ways reminds us that we are all responsible. It was the whole sin of humanity that put him up there. Every man, woman, and child and all their iniquities, all our false worship was what led to the grossest injustice ever that hung the righteous one on that tree. Uh, Let that sink in for a moment. Christ and him crucified isn't this story that tells us, hey, we're all right. Yeah, we've got some issues. Maybe we just need more resources. But when it really comes down to it, we do the right thing. Our moral compass is better than that, guys. Although they deny you, Jesus, I would never deny you. I'll even die with you. I won't leave you for dead. Uh, No, (laughs) the gospel of Christ and him crucified actually reminds us that as a result of being part of corporate humanity, and we're reminded of this every time we do the corporate confession, we are all unrighteous, unjust crucifiers. And believe it or not, It's acknowledging this ugly, sobering truth where we can be freed from all pretense of of self-righteousness and self-defined justice that God's justice can finally start breaking into our world and our very otherwise dark hearts. Because once we acknowledge that we are otherwise hopelessly unjust sinners in desperate need of a just justifier, 
that we can hear, truly hear this good news being proclaimed to us. And this leads me to my third point, which is Jesus is our just justifier. This comes from our second reading. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, which, by the way, can be translated justice simply. God's justice. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Ah, you see, all God's ways are justice, but here's the shocking good news. He doesn't give us what we are actually due. <laughs> Instead, even though God knew exactly what kind of injustice he'd encounter in this world, because by the way, he's been encountering it and enduring it ever since the beginning, ever since the garden, even though he knew all that, God still sent his son into this world. And this is, this, is, this is something that secular theories of justice don't understand. And this is what the gospel alone reveals. We all of a sudden get to experience God's justice and we also get to share and proclaim God's justice first and foremost as grace as grace in his perfect wisdom love and power God sent his son to be our neighbor because here's the Lord's answer to that question who then is my neighbor he sends his very own son Christ Jesus to dwell with us as Emmanuel right God with us but he's not just our neighbor right later in romans chapter 8 we're told that jesus came to be the firstborn among many brothers so whereas all other brothers have failed us jesus entered in and he became what the true brother's keeper and he'd do so by laying down his life, paying the full penalty for our unrighteousness and injustice so that we could receive in place of that his perfect righteousness. To truly right what's wrong, because here's what's wrong. We are what's wrong. But it's by his blood, by his ransom paid for sin, that we're made new, just and right before the eyes of the Lord. And we're told God did all this for that, for this very reason. Verse 26, Romans 3. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
And over the next two Sundays, uh, we're going to delve deeper into how this glorious gospel of Christ and him crucified uh, and this call to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus actually transforms us to be just, to actually walk in the ways of the Lord. And how proclaiming and living lives worthy of of this gospel of grace actually what helps us accomplish that. For all his ways are justice, and just and upright is he. All glory and honor and praise to our just justifier, Jesus our Lord. Amen.